Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And wow, this was a, an amazing episode. It truly was. And it was such an honor and a privilege to have Joe Friel on the show. Joe has contributed to the world of triathlon almost like none other. You know, I've had guys like Bob Babbitt on the show and, and many others that have been in and around the endurance sport and triathlon community for 40 years. And, and Joe is one of those guys, you know, he's working on his 18th book. Um, you know, for, for many of you, you may not know, but the triathlon training Bible has been seriously a Bible for many in terms of training for the world of triathlon. He's now on the fifth edition of that. Um, but he's also, you know, the co-founder of training peaks, which for many of you that have coaches, um, the way that you've been corresponding with your coach for many, many years, for over two decades, is through Training Peaks. Um, but just some wonderful stories here, um, you know, from his coaching philosophies and, and, you know, from the 50s, 60s and 70s and how that changed in the 80s and 90s and noughties. And um, a lot of good stories in this one, a lot of great takeaways. I really think you're going, going to enjoy it. I, I thoroughly did. It, was, it really was a privilege. Um, if you're enjoying this show, please share it. Would love you to share it with your family and friends. Uh, please give me a review. And if you're up for it, a, a five-star rating on, on Apple. That just helps with my ranking and being being heard and seen. Um, and just if you want to catch up at all, I am still available on Fireside Fridays for... Uh, 30-minute catch-ups. I've had some wonderful chats with people already. Um, so please just send me a DM on Instagram and we can hook you up for a chat. But I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today, I am joined by a true pioneer in the world of triathlon and endurance sports coaching. A visionary who's shaped the training regimes of amateur and professional athletes around the world for decades. His methods have stood the test of time, blending the art of coaching with the science of performance. He's the architect behind the Training Bible series and has penned the guide that countless cyclists, triathletes, and coaches have turned to. He's a co-founder of Training Peaks, one of the most innovative training software platforms in the world. A mentor to coaches and athletes alike, his impact on the endurance sports community is immeasurable. So without further ado, welcome to the Greg Bennett Show, Joe Friel. How are you, mate? Hi, Greg. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm pleased to be on. Thank you for having me. Looking forward wow. to it. It's such an honor and a thrill. I was just saying pre-show, just uh, to have you on the show is, is a real highlight for me. Uh, one of the things I love to do on the show is rewind the clock and I, I, I just can't think of anyone else I'd rather rewind the clock with than yourself. You've been around for a while. You've seen the sport, uh, endurance sports change so much. Um, so it's a real thrill to have you. Where, where are you actually calling from at the moment? I'm in Arizona in the north, uh, northern mountains, a little town called Sedona, which is up by the Grand, near the Grand Canyon. Beautiful, beautiful. Are you, are you keeping fit yourself these days? Well, I try to. The weather's not been very cooperative this week. We've had Rain <laughs> every day since Tuesday. It's now Thursday. Yeah, it's, it's just changed the snow. We just got like four inches in the last uh, hour, so oh, it's brutal. coming down hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds lovely. It actually is. A, I can picture the image. But mate, congrats on the um, also the the release of the fifth edition of the Triathlon Training Bible. Amazing. 
How many years apart have each of the additions been? Oh, they're typically about every seven years. Um, wow. But it's, that's not exactly right since the first, I guess, first edition came out in about 1997, I believe, or 98, right around there. So that's been about 27 years since it came out. So it's been a little bit less than every seven years. But uh, nevertheless, it's, it's, it's surprised me. I thought it might sell 1,000 copies the first year it came out. That'd be the end of it. But here it is. Um, how many is it? How many have you sold now? I need to know. You know I really don't know the count anymore. It was, in, it was over a million at one point, I recall, but I've lost track now. <laughs> and look, you know, fifth edition. What have you? What are the key updates that you've put in the most recent edition? Well, first thing I did was I took a look at, at zone intensity zones. Um, mm. well, I've gotten I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years on on more intensity zones than probably anything else, especially with the heart rate zones uh, mm. for running and cycling. And so I took a look at that and started thinking, what? How could I make this more individualized for the athlete instead of making it kind of carved in stone? And from that grew um, a kind of a, a multi-layered look at heart rate as a as a way of determining uh, intensity. Mm. And so I've been uh, I played around with that for quite a while, and finally put it on paper, and that's in the fifth edition. I love it, mate. I love it when people can go get that now. It's on it's on the shelves. If people want the updated version, um, go check it out. The fifth edition of the Triathlon Training Bible. But mate, what I want to do is rewind the clock um, and start, well, from the beginning. And I guess really get an understanding of, you know, your childhood and and how you first found your way into the world of endurance sports and and then even more so um, specifically coaching. Sure. Happy to do that. So I'm going to start back. (laughs) Let's not begin at the very beginning. This could be a very long story. (laughs) I'm pretty old now, so uh, let me just start when I was when I was about 12 years old, junior high school age. Yeah, that's yeah. when I became interested in sports, and I started uh, running. Um, went out for every sport they offered at my school, um, and that carried on into high school. And somehow the coaches always kind of um, took me under their wing, I guess you'd say. Mm. And I, I became kind of assistant coach for the teams I was on, especially as I, I became, you know, older, like, you know, junior and senior years in, in high school, for example. I was usually called on to do things that other athletes and the teams weren't called on to do. And, I, and I, again, I was in every sport, football, um, wrestling, track and field, tried basketball, but it didn't, that didn't work out for me. They actually cut me off the team. So I said, so never again will I play basketball. So that was the end of basketball in my life. Um, the, the other sports have stuck with me, especially running. Um, I took that into college. I was on the track team in college. Mm. Uh, lots of things going on there that really struck me. And I still remember to this day the details of how we trained back then. This is in the, in the early 1960s. Uh, my, how things have changed since then. And then I uh, started coaching myself. I was a, hired as a high school track coach in uh, about 1970, not, not, actually 1966. And then the uh, government, the U.S. government, decided I need, they needed me to win the war in Vietnam. So I was drafted, went to I Vietnam, 
kept on oh. running over there um, as much as I could. Uh, wow. When I got back four years later, when I was back in the States again, I got a job as a, another job teaching, hired as a track and field coach, um, uh, began to work with athletes a lot. Finally, I got to the point I realized I really wasn't enjoying teaching as much as I was the coaching. I really loved coaching, but teaching was kind of a, you know, it wasn't bad, but the students just didn't want to be there. I was a history teacher. And, mm-hmm. you know, high school students just do not want to be in a history class. That's about as far away from reality as you can get as far as they're concerned. Mm. I love history to this day. I still read historical books. But anyway. You and me both. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> I love it. I, love, I didn't love it in high school, but I've loved it more as I've, you know, the older you get, I think the more maybe you lean into it. I'm sorry to interrupt. No problem. Well, I had, <laughs> I had a double, double major in my undergraduate years and, one of the majors was physical education and the other was uh, history. And so I became a history teacher. That was what, what they needed most when I started teaching was history teachers, not, not PE teachers. Mm. And so I was coaching and uh, like I said, enjoyed the, enjoyed the coaching. But by about uh, 1979, late 1970s, I was beginning to realize that it was really the coaching that was really driving my interest in being there at all. And uh, so why did I do something to expand on this? I was running, especially running marathons and so forth. And, and in the meantime, I'd gotten a, a master's degree in exercise science. And so people were coming to me asking for advice on how to train for a race. And so I decided, I think what I'll do is I'll open a running store because there, there were no running stores where I lived at all in those days. In fact, there were probably only about four or five other running stores in the entire United States back in 1980. So I opened a running store uh, in Colorado. Uh, it became a, really an instant hit. I got lots of runners coming in the door. Began mm-hmm. to hire people. Uh, eventually I hired like 13 people to work for me. Um, two of them were triathletes. Um, and they were always telling me how great the sport was and I should give it a try. So finally in 1983, I gave it a try. I did a did a local race, and uh, I was smitten myself. I fell in love with the sport. Mm. Fell in love with it so much that when I got back uh, the next Monday, I decided to look into buying the bike store next door to my running store. <laughs> the guy was the guy was okay with that, so I bought eventually bought the bike store. Took out the wall between the two stores, and had in 1983 what was probably the very first triathlon store in the world. Wow. This was not a good decision on my part, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> the world is not the world is not ready for a triathlon store in nineteen eighty three. No, no. The sport had only been around, you know, for a handful of years. And yeah. So uh, you know, there were probably six triathletes in the entire city. So they would come in and they were they were very enthusiastic, but the runners would come in and they would ask what were all these bikes doing here. Yeah. And cyclists would come in, they would ask what all these running shoes are doing here. And so I became kind of a a weirdo in in the market, but I kept pushing it forward. And the thing began to finally start working. Um, But what happened along the way with people were still asking for for advice on, on training because of my background in in sport and in academic background, along with my personal background. And so I was, people would come in and I'd sell them a pair of running shoes and I would tell them how to train for an Ironman or a marathon or whatever it was they were doing off the top of my head, you know, just, just kind of a chat. 
And eventually people started asking me to write that down for them when, so they could have kind of like a training plan when they left for the week. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And then that became more popular to the point that people were coming in just to ask for free training plans from me without even buying anything. And so I realized at this point, something's got to change. I just can't stand here all day long giving away free information and not selling any shoes or bikes or anything else. So I, um, I, I decided to start charging. So my decision was to charge $5 every time I do this. And that had just the opposite effect. I thought that would scare people away, but just the opposite. People decided that really wasn't all that much, so they kept on coming in. More people came in. And the next thing I know is coaching people. Uh, besides running my triathlon store. And by about 1985, I realized I was making a lot more money off of coaching than I was off of uh, uh, the running store, triathlon store. Not that I had, by this time I'd raised my fee well beyond $5. I was getting quite a bit more by this point. Yeah. And um, so I decided I'm, I'm going to sell the store and just coach. So I sold the store. That was 1987. I sold the store. And, uh, um, but I realized right then I really wasn't making quite enough money to be able to pay the bills from just coaching. So I had to get a couple of jobs. So I got two other jobs to make money so I could pay the bills while I kept on coaching. So I'd, I'd work at my two other jobs whenever I had time throughout the day. And usually in the evening, I would sit down and write out training plans for athletes or make phone calls, whatever I had to do to, for coaching. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if, if I had, if I was making about $72 per client, I could retire or at least retire from my other two jobs and just coach and I could pay the bills. So I started working on that as a goal. And by 1993, I had 72 clients. So I quit my two day job, my other jobs and just coached. And uh, that was the beginning of my coaching career in, in earnest to, to this day. What, I, what has really got me to where I am right now was the, that decision to, uh, to get out of the other jobs and just coach. And consequently, it's, it's been a long journey, but I've had a heck of a good time in the process. I'm, yeah. I'm still a long ways to go with it, I know. I, I love it, mate. I love, I love the concept that, hey, <laughs> i got a running store, throw a bike store next to it. and. To be able to even say, you know, you're the potentially the first triathlon store in the world. I don't know. Now, you know, we, we fast forward 40 years and um, that's kind of awesome, right? I mean, and you see what the sport's become. You know, I think I started the sport in 86. Yeah. I did my first race at the end of 86 in a team and and then was sort of hooked like you right away, like loved it. Um, suddenly I've got, you know, Posters on my wall of Mark Allen. Don't tell Dave Scott that. <laughs> I'm mates with both of them now, but at the time I was a big Mark Allen fan and my best mate, he was a Dave Scott fan, so we were always, you know, big rivals. But it was, uh, it, it, for me, just listening to your stories just brings back so many fond memories. Um, you are in Colorado. So I had Frank Shorter on the show um, probably about 18 months ago, and Frank was our neighbor when we were living in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, yeah, sure. So he was two doors down, so we got to know each other very well. And we had a really good conversation with him in person when, when we were there. And it's, um, I just love these conversations of talking about the 70s and 80s and the running boom then, you know, shortly followed by this thing called triathlon that uh, I think all of us thought for a while there was just a, kind of a, a neon 
show off show where we're swimming, biking and running. And all of a sudden it, it became serious and became an Olympic sport and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's guys like yourself that, that positioned it. If I talk about your coaching, I know you had your exercise, um, science degrees, but was there a philosophy that you've taken to? And, and what I mean by that is I was heavily influenced by somebody like an Arthur Lydiard, who, yeah. you know, one of the all time great running coaches of all time, but I, I used a lot of his work and brought it into triathlon. But did you have mentors or was there a certain philosophy that you like to follow, especially in those early days? Yeah, philosophy can fall into a number of categories when it comes to coaching. But yeah, um, you know, having Arthur Lydiard as a, as a role model, in fact, I went to one of his last presentations before he died oh, back, wow. in, back in the 90s. He came to Boulder. Nice. And um, so I was able to uh, get in to listen to him speak. I'd read, you know, everything he had written, so I was mm-hmm. very familiar with him. And, uh, you know, he's kind of like one of those people that you remember because he's so central to endurance sports, especially mm-hmm. running, but he's just got this um, overwhelming in, involvement in the sport as far as even today. We still talk about Arthur Lydiard from for decades ago about how he did mm-hmm. things and how we're still doing things much the same way as he was doing it. So yeah, he was he was certainly right up there with my way of seeing the world. And I began to copy some of his ideas. Um, but there were other things going on besides just the the nuts and bolts of actually deciding what a training plan should look like. You know, I, I had come from a, a background in, in sport where coaching was very, um, it was not democratic. It was very autocratic. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were on a sports team back in when I was, like the late 50s, 60s, 70s, um, coaches didn't teach, treat you at all like you, like, the, the way they saw it was uh, you were there for them. The athlete was mm-hmm. there for the coach, not mm-hmm. the other way around. And that was kind of the attitude I took too, because I'd kind of grown up with that way of seeing the world. So when I became a coach, I was autocratic also. And I kind of bossed people around and, and uh, made them do things they didn't really want to do. And I used anger as a way of getting my way. And uh, I began to realize this when I started coaching uh, adults in the, uh, in the eighties were coming into my store that I couldn't really badmouth them or get angry at them. That wasn't really appropriate for people who might be my customers. So I had to uh, say, take it a different direction. So it became more democratic and I found mm-hmm. being democratic worked better than being autocratic. Mm-hmm. So I became much more of a democratic coach. And to this day, I kind of see it as when I'm working with an athlete, it's I'm working for them. They're not working for me. You know, I'm, I'm the employee. They're the employer. Mm-hmm. And that kind of became my my coaching philosophy over the over the years, which has now been forty uh, some years, I guess, of, of seeing the world that way. But I think that's the way to go, and that's the way coaches are becoming now. You don't find there, there are still some out there. We still come across mm-hmm. the autocratic coach, but they're not nearly as numerous as they no. used to be. No, I've been coached by them. I, I, I've been coached by some autocratic coaches and um, there were positives to some of that, honestly, like, you know, turn your brain off and just do. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, I love how you represent it as like, yeah, what was typical in the, you know, 50s, 60s and 70s was this. And it took, we take it for granted now that you'd have a democratic coach, right? Somebody that would oh, yeah. would actually listen to their athletes, but 
you were a part of that pioneer group that said, hey, no, we're actually going to flip this on its head. We're not just going to tell what to do. We're actually going to listen to the athlete. And something we take for granted right now. Um, but when, when you look at the, the past 40 years of coaching, you know, specifically in the endurance sports area, you know, how has the training plans of athletes changed? Has it changed dramatically or is the core of it all still pretty much the same? No, it's, it's changed dramatically and continues to change. It's, it's an ongoing mm. thing. It's, we're not, we're not mm. the ultimate by any means yet. Um, you know, when I was, for example, when I was in college, um, our coach knew only one workout. We did it every day. Wow. That was uh, all the, the entire track season. That was to do 400 now that we call them 400 meters, back in those days in the U.S., it's called 440 yards. It's a quarter yeah. of a mile. So we did 440s until somebody began to throw up. And that was that was that could have been 15, 20, 30. You never knew how many you're going to do. And you never knew. You never knew anything. You never knew. Um, wow. You never knew how long, how fast you were supposed to go because none of us had watches. You know, we don't, nobody in those days back in the 60s had a watch, a stopwatch on their wrist. Nobody had that. wasn't invented yet. That wasn't invented until the early, about 1970 or 71 is when the first wristwatch, stopwatch came out. The coach was the only one who had a stopwatch. He wore it on a lanyard around his neck, a big old thing on a, on a, on a rope. And he would tell you, he would call off your times as you came across the, the finish line for the 400, 440. And, um, and then we didn't know how long we were going to have to recover until we ran the next one. We just all stand there with our hands in their knees, panting and puffing, and he would tell us, we're not fast enough, we need to work harder, this is not good enough, you got to do better, these guys you're going to run against this weekend are much faster than you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'd say, okay, here we go again, he'd blow the whistle, and we'd go again, and, that, and we'd keep doing that, and, and as I said, until people started throwing up, and wow. about the time people started throwing up, he realized it was starting to get hard, so we might do one or two more, but then we'd call it quits, so we are always looking for somebody to throw up, that was... <laughs> Always the thing we were aiming for was try to get somebody sick enough um, because there was nothing to them. You know, it was this, this was a workout that Emil Zatopek had done back in the 1940s yes. and 1950s. Yes. So we yes. were doing the very same things. And this is, you know, this is, I don't know, 15 years after uh, Zatopek started doing this, 10 years after he retired, or even less, probably eight years after he retired. We're still doing exactly the same workouts he was doing. There, there was no periodization. There was nothing Lydia was talking about whatsoever. It was all what today we would call specific training. You're running at race pace yeah. or faster than race pace for the entire workout. There's no base period whatsoever. You just go out and run as hard as you can. Now now we go through this long process of building a base, just as Lydia did and, and others. He's not the only one. Yeah. We build this base for athletes and that's that's really the the foundation of everything else we do beyond that. And it has a lot to do with how well the athlete does um, eventually in their competitions. But, you know, we didn't, we didn't seem to understand that back in those days. And it took a long time, by the way, to figure that out. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned the name Emil Zadepec, right? I mean, and, and for people not listening, go look him up. One of the all-time, you know, greats to win the 5K, 10K and marathon at the – what Olympics? Help me out. 56. 52 or 56. Yeah. In fact, he won uh, the marathon. First marathon he ever ran, I think, was 50 – 52, I think, was the first marathon he ever ran, and he won it in the Olympics. Yeah, but just incredible. And he's, I mean, from the workouts I was doing in the late 90s uh, with my coach um, back back then, it was, 
you know, we do the 2200s with 200 rest, you know, float, and then you do 4400s with 200 float rest, and then you do 2200s with 200 float rest, and that's a 40K workout. And um, we, used to do, we used to do that a fair bit. It wasn't every day, but I know I can – I know the kind of workouts you were doing because we did a lot of 200s and 400s um, with Brett Sutton, my coach from the in the late 90s there. And uh, yeah, it got us it got us reasonably fit and strong, but it didn't. I don't think it got me to the point that I knew how to unleash my full potential. You know what I mean? It's like I was yeah. still limited to just being fit and strong, but I was never race ready. Um, and I had to take control of that of myself. Five years later, I started to really, you know, incorporate Lydiard with some Emil Zatopek, with some boot bits and other pieces, and you sort of grow a program out of that. But it's a, a, a great name. When you drop that name, I, I, I kind of go, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were still a lot of back in those days. He was, he was of my era, he was the, the best athlete, best runner. Yeah. By, yeah. by all means, he was, he was top of the heap. But but, um, you know, there other athletes took his place and we began, began to grow in how we did things and began to learn an awful lot. Lassie Viren, for example, yeah. go back to the early 1970s, he began to adopt the periodization concept. And I, I began to study him after, mm. after he won, you know, he won in 72 and 76, 5,000, 10,000, both in Olympics, both, uh, both years. Yeah. And so I began to take a close look at what he was doing, which is hard to do in those days because there weren't any books on this. No. One time you'd ever find any information about his journey, for example, would be in a magazine. And there weren't a lot of magazines that came out about uh, running sports either. So uh, it was very difficult to get information, but I, I found everything I could on Lassie Viren and began to study what he was doing. And that had a big influence on me also. A very interesting character, tremendous athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, still a lot we don't know about him because he kind of kept things, if you will, kind of hidden mm -hmm. under the bed, if you will, mm -hmm. but a great athlete. Hey, Lassie Vern, have you seen the documentary with him? And it's kind of uh, him, him running with the frozen beard and face. And have you seen that? There's a documentary on Lassie Vern. No, it was done in that. It was done in the seventies. You know, I, I was a, you know, a kid in the eighties that just was soaking up everything I could ever find. Um, after I watched Chariots of Fire, I think I was ignited <laughs> into the endurance world that I had to know everything and everybody. And, uh, but Lassie Viren, you know, was just, like you said, winning 72 and 76. Um, he was all time. Then he had the nosebleeds all the time and everything else, which, um, you just, you know, Oh, that's interesting. But anyway, he was a phenomenal athlete. And, and again, there was, there was so much learning from that. But then over time, mate, you, you know, it's almost like you have this old school kind of run into your drop or run into your puke mentality. Right. And then it's kind of like you, you keep learning, you stay curious, you keep growing um, from those around you and even with the people that you're working with. And how does it change? You know, the nineties to the noughties, you know, was there big differences? We start to use heart rate monitors. They start, we start to have a little bit more data and feedback did that start to really affect the way you coached? Yeah, it did. Um, when the first part, the first heart rate monitor came out was 1977. And uh, I had read about it, but uh, they weren't available where I lived in Colorado. I never, I never saw one until I opened the running store. And then I, then I got one of my own. This, this is the early 80s. Began to use a heart rate monitor. And that opened my eyes because up until that point, the only thing we had had is runners – going back to my earliest days was number one, ready and perceived exertion, how you felt 
and we used that all the time. We'd always talk to each other about how hard it was based mm. on, you know, not numbers, but it was very hard or it was hard or it was moderately hard or it was easy. So we always defined the, the workout intensity in that way. Um, we all did that. And then we, about 1971 or so, we got um, wristwatches with stopwatches built in. It was a Japanese company that made the first one. I forgot the name off the top of my head. But uh, that was just this great thing. All of a sudden, I could look at my wrist and I could see what, what my split was when I was running. Up until then, you had no, no way of knowing it whatsoever unless you created one of those big, gigantic watches around your neck on a lanyard. Nobody did that. And then, uh, what was it? About 1983, I got my first one, I think, my first heart rate monitor. Mm-hmm. And I began mm-hmm. to actually try to figure out how to use this thing. So I read a book by Jansen. He's a, I think he was a Norwegian or, or Swedish. I've forgotten. J-A-N-S-S-E-N. I forgot his first name. He wrote a book on called uh, Churning Heart Rate Lactate, in which he talked about athletes, uh, especially the athletes he was aware of, which were mostly elite athletes, and how they use heart rate monitors. And so that, again, had a big in- impact on me to try to think, figure out what he was talking about. Um, and from that, I began to work on training zones in, in my own way of seeing the world. So I tested my athletes that I was coaching on treadmills or, or stationary bikes to see what happened with their, their heart rates um, with various intensities based on RPE. And uh, from that, began I began to put together this, this whole set of zones that I came up with about probably came up with that about 1985, 86. That was when I began to put it down in writing and began to use it with all the athletes I was coaching. So you, so hang on, let me interrupt you. So you came up with zones? That was yours? Like no, when we talk zone one, two, three, four, five now? Yeah, I did I, I did that, but I'm, I don't know that I was the first one to do this. I don't, right. I don't really know what else was going on in the world because there really still wasn't that much information to work on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're kind of in the, everybody's kind of in the dark all the time. But I, was, yeah, I yeah. came up with my own system. I, I decided on, on actually on the seven zones is what I did. There mm-hmm. was the last, the last two or 5A and 5B, uh, 5A, 5B, and 5C, which were all, to use the language of those days, anaerobic. Um, mm-hmm. So that was what I came up with. And that, and that actually is what I used until I wrote this book, this most recent, this fifth edition book of the Tri- Traffic's Training Bible. That was the same zone system I was using all that time from the early 80s until whatever, just just wow. uh, a year or so ago. But I decided really needed to take, and take a look at it. So I, I changed the whole thing as far as heart rate. Yeah. And, and look, you've mentioned the book and I want to lean into that a little bit. And um, I'm always curious, you know, it's one thing to have the idea to write a book. It's another to actually take the action. Right. I think we're like, yeah, I should write a book. And I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, but you know, mid mid nineties, you start to realize the triathlon community needs something that they can lean on for support in their own training. Cause it really, it really was, we were all just trying things, right. And, right. <laughs> you know, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And, but what was the, you know, what was the catalyst to actually go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to write this book. Yeah, that's a kind of a convoluted story. That I was by 1991, I was writing for um, uh, Velo News Magazine, which is out of Boulder, mm-hmm. and they have a and and so they they kind of liked my writing. They kept encouraging me to write every month for them, 
And about that same, about 1993, I think it was, um, their sister company called Velo News, or Velo Press, rather, a publishing house, they liked the stuff I was writing for the magazine also, and they asked me if I would write a book. That was about, again, about 93. And I told them, no, I couldn't. I was coaching 72 people. There just wasn't enough time to do it. And besides that, I thought this, I'd write a book and nobody would buy it, so what's the big deal? Hmm. So um, I didn't, uh, I talked them out of, 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 of asking me to do this. I just said I wouldn't do it, so you know, leave me alone sort of thing. And um, then a, th- a funny thing happened. I came to your country, Australia, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, about 1994, the World Duathlon Championship was held down there. Yeah, in Tasmania, right? In Tasmania. Yeah, yeah. And yep. uh, my wife and I qualified, so we went down to do the race. And so I watched the, the pro race. It was, na- it was a nasty day. It was it was blowing wind and cold and rainy and just mm-hmm. a very nasty day. And after the race was over, we went to the uh, Blue Mountains area and uh, got a – what was it? a tree house, which was pretty amazing. We had a, our, our apartment or hotel, if you want to call it, that was a, a building up in a tree. They had to climb a ladder to get to it. And that cool. was, that was where we stayed um, for the entire uh, following week after the race. And I discovered that the birds there were very friendly, but they would eat out of the palm of your hand. So I would go out in the morning and with some cereal or something in palm of my hand, bread or whatever. And, Birds would come down and land on my hand and, and uh, et cetera. So I did that all week. And then when I got back, I was just before I got back, I began to feel like I was catching a cold. Something was coming on. Mm-hmm. That was in, uh, I believe it was November when that race was held. Yeah. I came back and um, throughout December, January, and February, I still had this cold. It wouldn't go away. And come March, the biggest half marathon of the, of the year was always held in March. And I'd always done it. So um, I entered the race and ran it despite my cold. I thought I'd just hold back a little bit. But I realized during the race, my heart rate was sky high. Um, yes. And so, but being as, as dumb as I am, I kept on running anyway and finished the race. And when I got done, I waited for my wife to come in and we were driving back home after the race and I told her, you know, I think there's something wrong. My heart's awfully high. Heart rate's awfully high. So I agreed I would see a a cardiologist or see my doctor the following week and he sent me to a cardiologist and the cardiologist diagnosed it as something called viral myocarditis in my heart. It's an inflammation of the heart brought on by a virus and in research, the virus is often carried by birds. And so I kind of think maybe I got it in Australia because I had it just after, just as I was leaving, I caught the cold that stayed with me that entire time. So the doctor said, the cardiologist told me that you need to stop running, no exercise at all until all the symptoms are gone. Uh, I had basically a little bit of chest pain. And that took, uh, that wound up taking nine months. But when he told me that, I realized all of a sudden I was going to have like about 15 hours a week when I wasn't going to be training that I could be doing something like writing a book. <laughs> Glass half full. <laughs> so, I so I called the publisher and said, hey, I guess I'll, call, I'll write that book now. Yeah. So I wrote, the first book I wrote was a cyclist training Bible. That was uh, 1996, I think. Okay. I wrote that book. Um, then I wrote a couple of other books. And finally, I think about 98 or 97 or 98, I wrote this triathlete's training Bible. And that one really took off. Um, 
the first one I wrote, you know, I thought, well, this will maybe they'll sell a thousand copies. I'd be really happy if it sold a thousand. More than likely, what'll happen is uh, it'll it'll kind of like you know die away, and but I'll mm-hmm. at least be able to say I wrote a book one time on how to train for for the sport. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, the first month they contacted me, and the publisher didn't say it already sold five thousand copies. So I was like flabbergasted that it would sell that much. And the next thing you know, they want me to write another book and then another book. And then finally the triathlete's training Bible. And that book was even took off an even faster rate than the cyclist training Bible did. And, um, so I was kind of like trying to decide what, what am I? Am I a coach who writes books or am I a writer who coaches? Yeah. I kind of like played that idea in the back of my head for a long time. I never could figure out what I was doing. Cause I, was, I wound up, I'm now working on, by the way, on my 18th book and uh, having a great time writing it. Wow. So I've come to the conclusion anymore that I'm more of a writer than I am a coach. Cause I really don't coach athletes anymore. I'm more, I'm more, and more likely to coach coaches. Than I am athletes nowadays, but, um, so I, I still continue to write. I've written a book, not quite every year since that first book, but pretty close to it. And uh, it's outstanding. I, I, I love it. And I love that you, everything you write is to help other people. Um, you know, it's tremendous value you're giving them. And, and just for everybody listening, if we just run through them, you know, just I've got a few in front of you that the cyclist training Bible, as you mentioned, uh, triathlon science that you wrote with Jim Vance, right. uh, the triathletes training Bible, as we've mentioned, fast after 50, how to race strong for the rest of your life. Uh, I, I got to pick that one up. Going long training for triathlons, ultimate challenge, which you wrote with a good friend of mine, Gordon Byrne. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah. a good man. Uh, the power meter handbook, a useful guide for cyclists and triathletes, the paleo diet for athletes, which you wrote with uh, Lauren Cordain. Um, Total heart rate training, the mountain bikers training Bible, uh, which you did with uh, Ned Overin, one of the all-time greatest mountain bikers. Um, Your first triathlon, going long, training for Ironman distance triathlons. Mate, it's uh, (laughs) like you said – I, I think we can we can call you one of the all-time great coaches, but we can also say, wow, in terms of being an author and, and putting out so much great material for people to go check out. I'll pull, put all of that in the show notes for people that want to go digest the books as well. Do you put them on Audible? Because I'm, I'm a listener when I, I read books. <laughs> well, some, some wound up on Audible. I don't, I don't think the Turning Bibles maybe – one of them has been. I want your voice. I want you to read I mean, it for me. Too. I, I don't want. I don't want some somebody else doing the reading. I love a Audible when it's the actual author. Um, so there you go. That's my request for you okay. now. Those books are hard, hard to do on Audible because I have I lots know, of tables know, and charts and graphs and all kinds of things throughout the book, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to describe those in a. No. <laughs> now, I want to mention also, you, you coached a good friend of mine, Ryan Bolton, oh, yeah. to the Sydney Olympics. And I've had Ryan on the show, and he's a great coach himself. Right. Um, tell, how did you guys meet, and how long did you, did you guys work together? Well, let's see. He called me in December of 1997. I can still recall the phone call. Yeah. Uh, I was getting lots of phone calls about that time because uh, – it had just been announced that the Olympics were going to the Sydney Games were going to have triathlon, mm-hmm. brand new sport, and so I was getting lots of contacts. And almost everybody that called me was like a wannabe. You know, they had no background at all in the sport. They somehow yeah, they figured yeah. it was going to be easy to just to 
say you're a triathlete and show up on race day and wind up going <laughs> to the Olympics. So I was really very skeptical. Anytime somebody would call me and say anything about the Olympics, I began to immediately turn them away. <laughs> so he That's called right. me in December of 97. And same thing. He's thinking about the Olympics, interested in, in coaching. And, and uh, so I started asking the questions I always ask, like, uh, you know, what's your background in sport? And so he told me, and he'd you know, done a few races. Mm-hmm. Had done an Ironman, not particularly a good one, but he'd done an Ironman and uh, other races. And but he's mostly a runner. He said he had he had been a runner in college. He's an All American, ten thousand meters, um, you know, twenty eight something, ten k. Um, so now he began to catch my attention. Um, he rode a bike a lot when he was a kid. He's he's on his bike all the time. He said, which is a lot of people anyway. So that it wasn't very impressive. Mm-hmm. He's, he was a good swimmer. Uh, according to him. And so <laughs> I decided I would take a chance and see what we could do. And so just because yeah. of his running background, uh, running being the crucial issue in a, in a draft legal race. And so I uh, took him on, began to coach him and realized this guy is, he is a tremendous athlete, not only physiologically, but also psychologically. Mm. He had some problems in the, uh, let's see about, about, Late 99, early 2000s, the, the trials, the U.S. trials for the Olympics were in uh, the last day of May of 2000. Mm. And up until then, for about probably the better part of the year, he'd been having upper respiratory infection problems. And we couldn't figure it out. He just was run down all the time. Uh, it wasn't because of training too hard. It was really holding back on his training. We saw doctors. Nobody could figure out what it was. So I had blood tests done. Nothing seemed to give us any indication. So finally, I decided I just had to cut his training way back. So we cut back to something like about, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 hours a week. He had been training like 25 or more. Mm. So he, I, I cut his training way back to see if we could just get him rested up and get over all this illness, just one after the other. And he finally began to come around. I think if I recall right, it was like in uh, late winter, midwinter, late winter, of 2000 um, with the trials only like five months away. And he had gone from like 15th in the world to like 25th in the world throughout that period of time, that, that period when he had all these um, upper respiratory mm-hmm. infections. And so he began to come on. But when, the one thing that really struck me about him throughout this entire time was not just the, the physical side, his ability to, to, to race, but also his mental side. Um, I was like going out of my mind trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And he was always of the opinion that it was going to be okay soon. We just need to hang in there a little bit longer and I'll be okay. <laughs> and he was always very positive and very happy, not, not carefree. He was certainly concerned, but he always had this optimistic feeling that things were going to be good and he would qualify. Mm. And that, that stayed with him right up till today. When I talk with Ryan today, I still get the same feedback from this being this positive happy way of seeing the world and things are going to work out in the long run. If we just hang in there, that was the way he was. And that was, you know, that he kind of got me on board. Then I began to feel the same way that we're, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it. And then the long story about his qualification, but the whole thing became a very, very uh, trying time for, for especially me trying to get him prepared throughout this entire period of sickness mm-hmm. uh, with the race looming just around the corner, but he qualified, he made it. Went on to the games in uh, 2000, 
unfortunately crashed on the last lap in the bike and lost a lot of time, had to try to catch back up. And I think you finished your recall right about 25th, um, which was a great disappointment for both of us because as good a runner as he was, he could have been a lot higher up than that. But anyway, that was uh, was so exciting. I, I love it. And to your point, big shout out to Ryan. Uh, he was on the show in my first year doing this show. So I'm in my fifth year. So I've had, I had Ryan on a long time ago, but you know, I raced Ryan late nineties, uh, and early two thousands, uh, great athlete, as you said, and even better, an even better person. Yeah. Um, just a, a good human being. And, yes. uh, I remember that crash, um, the top of Macquarie street, I think it was, uh, him, was it Jamie Hunt from New Zealand? I can't remember. Uh, actually, no, it wasn't Jamie. Jamie, I don't think qualified, but I remember that crash towards the end there and it, and it was awful to see, but, um, but mate, you got to have that Olympic experience with, with a great athlete and that's really cool. But I want to shift gear a little bit here. Um, the way you embrace technology with training peaks, um, you launched with your son, Dirk, if I'm correct. That's right. Um, and you launched in 99, uh, right before the internet bubble. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was building websites. and But you guys survived the internet bubble and you've only grown and grown and grown. And it's very rare I don't have a conversation with a coach or triathlete that says, oh, I've uploaded it to Training Peaks. It's almost <laughs> like a you know, the way we say Google, um, training peaks has become synonymous with, you know, training and coaching and the way athletes work with their coaches. It's, it's absolutely incredible to see what happened. Um, so tell me about that. Was it your idea? Was it Dirk's idea? Who who said, okay, we got to get in, we got to get in on this computer thing. (laughs) It had to do with my coaching business. I was, yeah. Yeah. I, I, by the, by the late nineties, uh, I had several coaches working for me. I've probably had a half a dozen at that point. <clears throat> and uh, Dirk came on board also. He, he had been racing as a road cyclist, a pro road cyclist in Europe in the late 80s and early 90s. He came back to the U.S. and uh, was still racing locally uh, throughout the U.S. Uh, professionally. But I brought him on board as a coach so he could have uh, – because he, he was doing a pretty good job, if I could tell, of understanding what was going on in the world of coaching – so he came on board as a coach, and he realized right away, this is probably about 98 or so, that we had a communication problem. Um, when I first started coaching people back in the running store, I would talk with them face-to-face. They'd walk in the store, and I would tell them what to do and write down a piece of paper and hand it to them. Mm-hmm. And eventually it got to the point where people were not in the same town as me. Uh, they were from out of town, maybe out of state. And eventually, out of the country, they were from the other side of the world. And uh, I was trying to communicate with people in old-fashioned ways, you know, U.S. mail. Fax. Or fax machines. Fax I remember machines. The, the fax, <laughs> yeah, the fax, fax machines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so every Monday morning, I, when I went to my office in my, in my home, I always told the uh, my clients to, to uh, fax me their, their weekly blog uh, yeah. on Sunday night. So every Monday morning I'd go to my office, my desk would be covered with all these rolled papers and I'd figure out which ones to go together, you know, because they would cut off every time, every page. So I'd put them all together and, and that, it was just a, it was a nightmare. And so my son said, you know, we can probably do better than this. There's this thing out there now called the internet, which I knew about, but I didn't pay much attention to it. And, um, but he was, he was, you know, as a younger guy becoming quite familiar with it. And so he said, he's got a, a close friend, um, in fact, the guy who was the uh, best man at his wedding, um, 
And uh, he was into, uh, he, he, he actually had a job where he was designing websites for Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. And he could probably tell us how to figure something out. So his name was Gear Fisher. And so uh, my son contacted Gear and they got together and talked about what it should be. And they decided to use my format I've been using for the last couple of years for communication with the athletes, the page I was faxing to them. And they would, mm-hmm. and they would fax back to me. So they um, put that online. It was just for my clients. It wasn't for anybody else, just for, you know, all the clients we had for all of my coaches. Cool. Yeah. And that was 1999. And by, by early 2000, I mean, very early, like around January, February, we realized, man, this, this thing is really going really well. And Gear, the guy who actually the work that designed it, he was ecstatic about it, how, mm. how well it was doing. He was, he was, he was doing it out of his, you know, his bedroom at night to come home from work and he'd work in the computer at home. And he was designing the pages and making little tweaks here and there, things he was figuring out or finding out that we would tell him, the jerker I would tell him about what needs to be done about the thing. So he was keeping it up to date all the time. And uh, so finally in early 2000, we decided to go public with it. Um, and uh, we called it originally, it was called Turning Bible, TurningBible.com. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started out with that name, and it didn't take off real fast. We got some clients, some people started using it. Uh, we thought our customers were primarily athletes, so we kind of reached out to them as much as we could. We wouldn't figure it out for probably about three years that our our, our clients were actually coaches. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. we started reaching out to coaches, then things began to change, began to grow very rapidly after that. Today, they're still our primary our primary um, client mm. is is, a, mm. is coaches. So it kind of got a strange start, but it wasn't because of my vision whatsoever. It was my, my son's vision along with Gear Fishers, and they they put it all together, and all I did was just say, yeah, it looks good to me, and let's use it. That's all I did. I've, I've basically stayed out of the way all these years. I've never really done anything <laughs> at all. <laughs> I love it, but you've sur- you surrounded yourself with a great team. I'm curious as to your thoughts, though, as we 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 look in the present and and potentially the the future here, and um, the amount of data we're now collecting, mm-hmm. whether people are wearing Whoops or Super Sapiens CGMs or got their blood work, or or now you know this last um, twelve to twenty four months with AI. Um, coming in and, and, and helping extract more and more data and connect the dots more. It's, it's been a massive shift. I'm just curious as to your sort of thoughts around technology and how it's either helping or hurting yeah. coaching. Um, a little bit of both, and, actually. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah, well, if, if, again, if we go back historically, the first step, first time I saw an improvement as far as having real data in front of us was a stopwatch on your wrist back in about 1971. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until 1977 that the heart rate monitor came out. So that is like 16 years later. There's a big gap there till we get the next piece of amazing data producing device. And the next one is 1986, the uh, power meters invented by, uh, by a German, uh, Uli Schober, that became SRM. Um, that is that 86 or 96? That was, 96. That's 86. 86. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. I got my first one in 93. I wrote yeah, okay. a letter and said, I'm, I'm writing a book. This is, I guess it was, after, <laughs> it was, it was 94. I was yeah. I wrote a letter and said, I'm writing a book. I'd like to include a little bit on a power meter 
I can't afford to buy one. Could you loan me one? So he loaned me one for three months, an yeah. SRM. So I tried it. And out of that came one paragraph in my first book. Uh, <laughs> today, <laughs> it's like an almost entire chapter on the subject. But then, back then, it was just one paragraph. And so uh, so the, my point is that the, the time gaps between these devices that create data were gigantic, mm-hmm. you know, a decade mm-hmm. or more between these things being developed. Now, it's almost like monthly. There's mm-hmm. something coming out almost monthly. And in fact, I'm waiting right now to hear about the, most, the latest one, which is uh, continuous lactate monitors. I yes. expect to hear about those any day uh, mm-hmm. being available on the market. They'll be probably kind of pricey. And it'll take a while yep. for people to figure them out. But that, that's going to be another a little data piece that we can look at. That uh, and, with, and with all of it put together, we are now overwhelmed with data. Data, data. yeah. And, yeah. And, and my problem, you know, that, that's good. I like data. I, I, you know, you mentioned a book I wrote about Power Meter Handbook. I really yeah. like data. Turning Peaks is all about data. And I, I love looking through data on, on Turning Peaks. I've always enjoyed this stuff. But the thing that always strikes me is athletes seem to have lost this idea of how it feels to do a certain mm-hmm. intensity, how, how the effort feels, the RPE. Yeah. yeah. So that always, when, when I was, as I mentioned, when I was younger as an athlete, we all talked about how it felt in terms of just our feelings. We had no data to look at whatsoever. It was just, how did you feel? Well, it felt hard or it felt easy, wherever you want to describe it as. And, I, and what I've found now is, in fact, over the last 20 years, is the athletes have gotten away from that. We've gotten away from talking about how it feels and more about what the numbers were when I was doing the workout or the race. Mm-hmm. So what I had to start doing with some of my athletes who were really overly involved with data was having them put a piece of tape over their power meter and over their wristwatch. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't see it. And then they go out and do a workout. And I can, wanted to see how close the workout came to what I prescribed based on the data they actually collected. Were they actually doing what they were supposed to be doing based on not being able to see any data except how they felt? And so I discovered many of them just could not do it. And so we had to go through this long learning process where they had to tell me every workout, how they felt on on a scale of one to 10. And that is kind of like the the piece we're still missing today. We've tried to get it back on training peaks. We've, we've added that, that little piece to the, Mm -hmm. to the daily Mm -hmm. workouts. You can kind of score the workout on a scale of one to 10, but uh, we're still not very good with that. People are much better at talking about their power meter than they are their your sense of perception your feelings yeah <laughs> it's uh it is it's fascinating isn't it? i remember um do you remember andreas raylert uh the great german athlete got second at kona ironman i think oh yeah, yeah he used to put the srm under his seat so <laughs> he never saw it never he, saw he, didn't, he always went by feel and he never looked at the data himself but he had the data there for, <laughs> for post-race and i i kind of look at all this data that we're collecting now as we have so much data that it actually, in my mind, makes the coach's job even more important in taking that data, understanding it, and then giving the message to the athlete without them, without the athlete being so consumed by it. It's almost like, look, I've collected this data, you go figure it out, and they'll come back and tell me what to do. You know, and this is where I kind of look at AI and the potential of what AI could do in terms of taking some of that data, sifting out the important stuff or the not important stuff, giving it to the coach to then sort of message it to the athlete. It's a, it's an interesting time, but I actually believe that 
it's more important for coaches now to be upskilling themselves on all the types of data, but not having the athletes be so concerned by it that they actually lose not just the feel of what they're doing, but the joy, you know, the joy of what you do, the joy of sleeping, the joy of eating, the joy of working out. I feel like sometimes we can lose some of that if we have too much data. You agree? I agree hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think we've gotten yeah. to the point now where we're overwhelmed with data. I know I've talked with athletes before and I asked them, you know, do you, um, how, how do you, do you analyze your, your data after a workout? And sometimes mm. what they're describing to me is a process that would take longer than the workout did. It's just, they're, they're digging through all this with a calculator next to their, on their, uh, next to the computer and yeah. they're running all the numbers to see what they mean and trying to draw conclusions from all this. It's like they're over, and most of them don't know how to train, don't know how to use this data, but it's just the data itself is somehow important and they need to be aware of it and need to uh, collect it and somehow look at it and try to understand it. Yeah. You know, when I get an athlete like that, I, I, I have to kind of get on top of them a little bit to uh, be less concerned with their data and more concerned about how they feel. So when I, have a converse, when I would have a conversation with them, I would have a lot of questions about their their sensations. What were they experiencing when this was going on? Your point about AI is well taken. I wrote an article on this so last uh, last summer sometime mm-hmm. about the future for of AI for coaches. Um, it's got some upsides and downsides. Uh, coaches who do who create a lot of training plans who. who Make you know who who do all their income from training plans online, a, a generic training plan. Those are the ones who, have, who are going to have a problem because the AI can create those off the you know very very quickly, and, mm-hmm. and even better than the coach can because they can know the athlete. All the athlete has to do is enter a little bit of information, yes. and from that the plan can be created by AI very easily. So that's probably not in the best interest of coaches at all. But what is, is what you just described, which is being able to use AI as, a, as an assistant, mm-hmm. as, if mm-hmm. you will, as an assistant coach or as a, somebody who at least looks at the data, uh, sifts through the data, looks for what's important and tells you what's important rather than you have to go through and make decisions yourself. So it can use your philosophy, your way of looking at the world, your way of training athletes, and from that, draw out the, the best data you can for this particular athlete give it to you and then let you be able to do the final update on what the, all this means exactly to you from your perspective, which is somewhat different than what AI will, will do in that case. But that, mm. that's got some real potential for coaches. I However, love that. It probably mm. means there may not be as many assistant coaches in that case. There may be people who are being left by the wayside who are down the, down the, uh, the rope a little bit in terms of their being on the, in the coaching uh, business. But nevertheless, um, I think that can be resolved by eventually by bringing in more clients, which is what coaches are always trying to do, trying to bring in more clients. And that mm-hmm. will that that's becomes the key then is you can if you can work faster because of AI, you can have more clients. If I don't spend yeah. nearly as much time analyzing data after a workout, I can uh, spend some more time going out speaking to groups or writing things for for uh, magazines or doing things online to promote my business. So you can, I can perhaps bring in more clients by doing that. So it's a very interesting situation you bring up something I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in and, and look forward to seeing how it plays out over the coming years. That is so well said and so on point, by the way, I've had this conversation so much, both my, my life in the, the tech world these days and the amount of people asking me questions, even guys when I'm in the sauna in the morning or whatever, 
you know, I'm like, no, look at AI as making you more productive. And when you go to hire people, I wouldn't hire anybody now that doesn't understand at least the concept of AI and how they potentially could upperform themselves. You know, it's like a, it can be a useful tool if you know how to use it. Don't be worried about losing your job or whatever. Upskill yourself quickly and become 10 people compared to when you were one. You know, it's like a, it really can be a powerful tool. Um, but, but the way you just said it was absolutely perfect. Mate, I, I want to finish up. Um, this has been absolutely thrilling for me to just sit and chat with you and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But I like to finish the show with um, what I call the final four questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Gosh, <laughs> probably a lot of things. <laughs> um, I think the biggest lesson I've had in my life uh, was one I've already mentioned to you is that when the worst thing I had ever experienced happened to me in my life, which is having that viral myocarditis, that inflammation mm-hmm. in my heart, one of the best things that ever happened to me occurred because of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I began to pay attention to those sorts of things. When bad things happened to me, could this possibly be the, the, the forerunner of something good about to happen to me? Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of taken that attitude when bad things happen, it means good things are around the corner. Um, not always the case, but often the case. And so I've passed that on to my, my son and to my granddaughter, uh, that very same idea that, you know, you've, when things don't go the right way, kind of like be patient and see what happens because there could be things, mm-hmm. something that's going on that doesn't really stand out right now, but you never can tell. Had I not gotten that, that heart condition, I would never would have written a book. If I, I never it. would have written a book, what would have, what would, would never would have been attorney picks because attorney picks grew right. out of my books. I never would have had a coaching company. All these things grew out of that, that, that virus I had in my heart. So, so look for the, the best things in life. I thought, wow. You know what? I, I love what you just said there. And I had the same experience. So for me, it was the 2000 Olympic game. So you know, I, I was ranked number two in the world and had won on the Sydney World Cup the year before. And, you know, anyway, long story short, didn't get put on the Australian team. Um, court case and everything followed. I moved to Canada to help this young guy called Simon Whitfield get ready. Um, but while I was in Canada, I met this girl called Laura Reback. And <laughs> now we're looking 24 years later and, he, you know, she's my wife. We've got two great kids and, and, and my career took off after we met. And there was just so much follow-on from what I would say one of the most disappointing, bittersweet moments of my life, you know, of being left off the Sydney Olympic hometown Olympics. So going, Hey, my, my best mate won the gold medal and I got the girl. It ended up being a pretty, it it ended up being pretty awesome. But to your point, it took, there was months and months and months of misery before it happened. So hang in there, be patient. (laughs) That's really cool, mate. Love it. Um, all right, next one, three people you'd want to have dinner with, um, non-family living or dead, um, it can be family if you want it, but yeah. <laughs> well, if it can be family, I guess I'd, I'd start there. My, my father had a yeah. very rough life and uh, he had to drop out of school at age 12 because his father died and he had to go to work to make enough, enough money to uh, pay the bills for his, for his family. He had one brother and, a, and, his, and his mother, of course. And that, you know, I'd love to, to talk to him when he was 12 years old to find out what in the world his life was like and how he dealt with it. Cause this shaped wow. the rest of his life was this, this, um, experience of having to become a, 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 a you know, the guy who paid the bills wow, for the family. Cool. Cause back in those days, women didn't go to work. They're, they're expected 
<clears throat> to to be home all the time. <clears throat> so yeah. his mother wasn't going to work. So it was only he was the oldest child. So his job was to go out and make money. So I would like wow. to talk with him when he was twelve years old because I know he was going through a heck of a experience. Um, we've already mentioned one person I'd like to talk to. Looking back, is Arthur Lydiard. Um, mm. I mentioned to you that I talked. I went to one of his talks back in the late nineties. Probably one of his last talks because he died about that time. And I think he'd be a fascinating person to uh, mm-hmm. to talk with over over supper and, and find out where his ideas came from. I, I've read his autobiography, or his biography, and other things about him, and I've got a pretty good idea of how he got started. But there's a lot of details being left out there at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. talked with him. I would talk with uh, oh gosh, um, Doc Councilman. I don't know if you do, readers may not know who Doc Councilman is. He's a uh, he was a swim coach, sixties, um, seventies, mm-hmm. maybe into the early eighties. Um, he's the guy who, by the way, invented the the lane clock. If you have a lane clock in your pool, it's his idea. Yeah. He came up with that. Uh, he created more gold medalists, actually more medalists, not just gold medalists, more medalists in the Olympics than any coach in any other sport. Wow! Uh, coached some of the best athletes the world has ever seen. Um, uh, very interesting character. Very interesting. I've, I've read about him, and he's just got this amazing story about his life. Also, cool. he'd be a good good guy to talk to. And uh, but he's gone. Also, actually, the only one that may be still around that I'd have be very interested in talking to is Greg Lamond. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd like to ask a lot of questions about how come and why and when and where. Uh, there's all, all kinds of things I don't know about his experience in the late 80s with the Tour de France and being on the, the team he was on with Bernardino and all the yeah. inner workings of his, of his team and how he was racing against his team at one point and all these things were going on that had been answered. But to me, they're not fully answered yet. They're still, I still have doubts in my mind about some of the things he brought up, but he'd be one that I'd, I'd love to talk to. I've only, uh, uh, Met him once. It was very quick in passing, but uh, someday maybe I'll get, get to talk to him. We're going to have to make that one happen. I've had Phil Liggett on the show, and Phil Liggett's a very good mate of mine now. We've become very good friends over the last yeah. couple of years, which I still can't believe I can even say out loud, you know, because I was such a fan <laughs> of Phil Liggett. It was like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. You know, we, we text each other, and I still say to my wife, Laura, like, oh, Phil's texted me. Um, <laughs> But I remember on the show, I sort of said, you know, what was the greatest call that you've ever had? And it was that, you know, the finish down the Champs-Élysées with the time trial right. with uh, Greg LeMond. And uh, anyway, he just said it was the most amazing call. Uh, you know, what was it, six or seven seconds? Eight seconds. Eight seconds. Eight seconds. <laughs> you are a data person. Yeah, I love I, it. I, I remember but, that race. There were two great right. races that year. That was one, yeah. Tour de France, and the other was Ironman away. Uh, yeah. Mark Allen, Dave Scott going shoulder to shoulder. And I was there yeah. for that. Watched it uh, firsthand. Didn't race, just yeah. wanted to see the race. So I, uh, my wife and I went over and we just uh, hung around for the race and followed it throughout all the stages. And and um, I can still recall about two miles uh-huh. into the run, and I'm standing there in the heat and humidity of Kona with sweat pouring out of me. Can't wait to get into the shade. And here come these guys running past me running that lickety split. They were going fast, shoulder to shoulder. And when I saw them again, whatever it was, eight, 10 miles later, they were still shoulder to shoulder right down to the very end. That was like the best triathlon ever. So the two best races in the world that ever happened 
as far as I'm concerned, happened that year. Well done. I think you're right, you know. Like, it really is. I mean, for me, as a, as a, as a kid in Australia, 89, you know, I'm 17 at the time, and we had to wait months to actually see it in Australia on TV, you know, yeah. <laughs> live water sports, but we all knew the results from the magazines and everything, and, uh, you know, it was it was a big big turning point for the sport it was you know the iron war as we all know in the world of triathlon but it was it was just such an it really is the thing that put triathlon truly on the map i believe um i always feel for dave's a good mate of mine and we don't talk about 87 when he really you know came back in, and came back over the top and had a, such a an, a thrilling victory there as well but i often feel for dave because he is such a an incredible man himself, you know, with six Ironman wins and everything else. And, and then we always talk about the Iron War, and he's like, "Yeah, it was it was a good race." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it was like a good race. <laughs> it was a good race. I'll say that for it. <laughs> All right, my next one. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Oh, five years. I, I suspect not a lot will change. I, I will still be writing books. I at least I hope. Mm, um, like I mentioned, I'm on the 18th book right now, and I'm actually toying around with other ideas in the back of my head. Um, there's something about writing that's, that I find very uh, rewarding. Um, mm, at the end of the day, mm. having written something, then come back the next day and rewrite it because you don't like the way it turned out and keep doing that over and over and over until you produce something. Um, and by the way, I should, I never mentioned this, but this, this is a funny story this, just quickly. Um, when I was in college, the lowest grade I ever got in college was a C plus, And that was in a writing class. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that the way yeah. the world works? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was not oh. a good writer back then, but it was just basically because of things I had to write about. But one day she yeah, decided, assignment was one day to write a 500 words about water going down the drain. Yeah. What in the world can you get excited about water going down a drain and write 500 mm-hmm. words about it? So that, it just didn't interest me. Yeah, no, no. It's, well, that's, isn't that everything? I mean, geez, if you if you find something that you you slightly interested in, it's amazing how suddenly you can go. Oh, I'm going to really go after that. Um, I love it. All right, last well, last one. How would you use your remaining days if you had six months to live? Oh. I'm meant to be morbid. This meant to be more. <laughs> <laughs> I would be. I, I would probably spend my time much as I am right now with my wife. Yeah. Um, we work out together. We go for a ride every day when, when it's not snowing like it is right now. Uh, yeah. We go for a, a ride every day together, a couple of hours on the, on the road. Uh, she's in great shape. And mm. uh, I would still be doing that. And we, we come back and, you know, we each go our separate ways. She goes back to her, her uh, salon, she calls it, where she works on all kinds of projects she's got going. I go to my office and I work on my computer writing. And we come back yeah. at the end of the day again. Um in the wintertime, we sit by the fireplace and chat about how the day went. And then if we got caught up on everything, if we're reading, we'll, we'll continue our, our book we're reading or whatever it may be. But I, I enjoy doing that with her, and, and I expect that we continue. Mate, I love it. This has been such a thrill for me, Joe, honestly. Um, big fan. Uh, I want to thank you for – just all your contribu- uh, contributions to the sport of triathlon, but even, you know, endurance sports as a whole, um, from your books, your, your coaching, uh, all your experiences to training peaks. Um, mate, you, you really have, I'm not sure you probably even understand quite the impact you've, you've had on, on the triathlon community at large. And so 
you know, from the bottom of my heart, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and all that you've done uh, for the world of endurance sports, mate. Really appreciate you. Rick, very kind of you to say that. I, I do appreciate it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good opportunity for me also to be on your program. I, I enjoy talking with athletes, especially athletes uh, whose paths may have crossed many times over the years and never actually met each other. <laughs> so it's, it's good to talk, chat with you. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, thanks again, mate. And um, all the very best for everybody listening. You can find all the show notes, the timestamps and uh, everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right. Stay on the line, Joe. Appreciate you, mate.